1: Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the very latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White. It's the News Roundup, so let's get into this week's biggest domestic news. Chaos and confusion around abortion medication continues to dominate the headlines. Late last night, Florida's governor signed legislation that bans most abortions after six weeks. That move will weigh on his likely 2024 presidential bid. We also catch up on news from Kentucky and Tennessee and why NPR is parting ways with Twitter. Joining us this week, Ali Vitali. Ali is NBC's Capitol Hill correspondent and author of Electable, why America hasn't put a woman in the White House yet. Welcome, Ali. Hey, thanks for letting me be here. Also with us, Benji Sarlin. He's Washington Bureau Chief for Semaphore. Welcome back, Benji. Thanks for having me. And Wendy Benjaminson, Deputy Managing Editor at Bloomberg News. Wendy, welcome back.
2: Great to be back.
1: So we start in a back-and-forth legal fight over the Food and Drug Administration's approval of Mifepristone 23 years ago. That's a pill widely used in abortion and miscarriage care. Now, last week, Matthew Kaczmarek, a Trump-appointed federal judge in Texas, issued a preliminary injunction that revoked the drug's FDA approval, effectively making it illegal nationwide. Then on Wednesday, an appeals court temporarily paused part of his ruling, but not all of it. And by Thursday, the Justice Department announced it would seek help from the Supreme Court to maintain current access to mifepristone while the case is being heard. The new restrictions on the drug are expected to take effect today. Ali, how is the appeals court ruling going to affect access to this widely used medication?
3: Look, this is about to get very confusing, and we already know that the maker of Mifpristone has escalated this to the Supreme Court, basically appealing the federal appeals court appeal. So we're already getting into some pretty dodgy legal territory in terms of the precedents that are going to be set here. I do think, though, that what's stunning about the initial decision out of Texas is that it doesn't go at the the pill itself. Instead, it just says that 20-plus years ago when the FDA approved it, it's no longer approved. And I think there's a slippery slope there that abortion advocates are pointing to, but also just people who watch the courts that is it appropriate for judges to be making decisions about what is medically sound for people to use? And so... You've got, of course, the ruling out of Texas, and then that comes directly in collision with a separate ruling out of Washington state that seeks to shore up access to the abortion pill. And frankly, the longer that this goes without any kind of decision from the higher appeals court and frankly, from the Supreme Court, the longer those decisions end up being in direct collision with each other. And what that means is just mass confusion for anyone trying to access abortion care through the pill.
1: Now, Wendy, the DOJ has asked the Supreme Court to weigh in. When might that happen?
2: Well, it, they could at least agree to take it up any time, and then it could be weeks or even months before they do. But there's a really interesting dynamic here with the Supreme Court, um, as Ali mentioned. The their, The Supreme Court is always looking for the broader implications, right? So they are going to look at this ruling and say, well, wait, does this mean that if someone doesn't like a diabetes medication or a mental health medication or, I don't know, a heart attack pill, if someone doesn't like it, can can a judge stop it from being available? Can a judge say that a pill of any kind cannot be distributed without a doctor's visit? Those are not judicial decisions. And even the conservatives on the Supreme Court who have ruled in against abortion rights might find this one a little sticky, um, according to Supreme Court watchers that I've spoken to on this. So even though the court is very conservative now, it's not a slam dunk for that Texas judge.
1: Let's go to our inbox. We got this message from Robert, who says, seems this debate has nothing to do with the drug's efficacy. Clearly, the conservative judges are aiming to get this to the Supreme Court. It's all about religion and faith and magical thinking in the existence of a judgmental God. And to your point, Wendy, Sandy and Pennsylvania emails, once judges are allowed to overrule agencies and disciplines where they have no expertise where does it end? What if a judge targets a drug which is manufactured using a process they don't like? Is that fair game? And we also heard from Doug in Oregon, who says, I practiced administrative law for over 30 years. If the Supreme Court lets the Texas case or the Fifth Circuit appeal stand, the implications go far beyond the FDA. For example, if the standing or regulatory portions of these rulings stand, plaintiffs could challenge environmental regulations and virtually any regulation on extremely dubious ground. I mean, Benji talked talk about some of the broader implications here. Well, we've had
4: so many of these questions where the federal government, you know, and the executive branch goes through their normal process of uh, expertise, testing, you know, uh, know, request for comment, you know. Uh, If you throw that into the mix with judges, you can get into, you know, it's easy to find hypothetical situations where it gets out of control. So just to look at medication alone, look at how much Political fighting. There has been just about, say, COVID medication, about things like vaccines or treatments that you know the FDA says do work or don't work. Um, imagine judges getting involved with that because you know some citizens group brought a lawsuit saying this or that is unsafe or that you know this treatment that doctors say doesn't work and study show doesn't work actually should be you know approved and recommended. You can see this spinning out of control, and this could obviously apply to you know other. Uh, regulatory bodies that, you know, have the same approach. But even with just the FDA specifically, it's so easy to imagine other types of medication
1: falling under similar lawsuits. Democratic governors this week are fighting back against that Texas ruling.
5: At my request, the University of Massachusetts Amherst agreed to purchase approximately 15,000 doses of That's
6: That's enough, that's sufficient to ensure coverage for well over a year.
1: That was Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey speaking Monday. How are we seeing states responding, Allie?
3: Well look we're watching states that are blue and want to keep access to this pill, stockpile this kind of abortion medication. I know I mentioned earlier that that dueling ruling out of Washington state that effectively continues to try to shore up the access that people have had to this FDA approved medication. I also just think it's important for us to note as this works through the courts, the ways that over the course of the last 20 years this drug hasn't just been approved and deemed safe and and efficient. But it also has been expanded. I mean, during the pandemic, we watched the FDA say that this pill could be applied, could be prescribed over telehealth. And there's a reason why people need that, which is to say, I went to South Dakota in the aftermath of the leaked decision on Dobbs. And I tried to do some reporting there about the ways that having one clinic in a rural state can be a real barrier to access, especially for low income women who are trying to access this care. By being able to get the abortion pill over telehealth, it allows them to not have to travel eight to 10 hours of driving, having to take off work, potentially having to find and pay for lodging. It really does break down barriers to access. It's why many abortion advocates thought that the abortion pill would be one of the next and earliest battlefronts. Clearly, we're seeing that play out right now. But as we're watching this battle over whether or not you can use the pill, there's also the piece of it that the pill was made to make access easier, especially for women trying to terminate pregnancies early on in the early initial weeks of pregnancy.
1: We got this question from Teresa in Tulsa, who says, whatever happened to the six-year statute of limitations to challenge an
2: agency action? Wendy? That's a very, very good question, and it's one that um, big pharma is also, the pharmaceutical industry is also um, very, very concerned about. There were 400 investment firms and pharmaceutical companies that have signed a statement in opposition to the ban, which, of course, at first blush sounds like. Um, well, they're going to lose money. The company, and so that's why they are doing this. The company that makes Mifepristone is actually a very small company with, I think, you know, a few hundred employees. It is not GlaxoSmithKline or, you know, one of the pharma giants that um, politicians love to demonize. Um, so they are obviously worried about just that implication.
1: Well, and Benji, this might be a good time to just explain a little bit more about that appeals court decision because it upheld part of Texas's ruling, but not all of it.
4: That's right. So there's actually competing decisions right now, but the initial appeals court one upheld uh, some of it, but it also... um you know, it basically said that the FDA has to uh, abandon changes it's made since twenty sixteen, including uh, allowing the um, drug to be recommended to be used further along in pregnancy, ten weeks versus seven, including um, you know how it whether it can be sent in by mail. So there's definitely, um, you know, still a lot of issues to work out here, you know, even after they partially state some of the opinion. But on the other hand, you also have a federal judge in Washington state you know, who has has literally said, you know, these 17 states that I have jurisdiction over, you should ignore that ruling, which is one reason the Supreme Court's going to have to weigh in. So we're dealing with, you know, multiple competing decisions here right now that, that are kind of contradictory.
1: Late last night, Florida passed a ban on abortions after six weeks. It currently allows them up to 15 weeks. That made Florida a destination for abortion care in the South, where most states have passed tight restrictions since last June. Allie, when would this new ban take effect?
3: Look, we watched Ron DeSantis immediately fly back from a book tour slash likely campaign stop last night to sign this as soon as he possibly could. Clearly, this is the goal here for him. This has been on his legislative agenda for a while, and Republicans there are making good on it now.
1: We're covering some of the week's biggest news. We'll be back with more in just a moment.
0: Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more. Then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2x miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life, Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teladochealth.com slash whatsyourwhy for more information. That's T E L A D O C health slash what's your why.
2: In this country, some truths aren't self evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR, Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. Let's
1: get back to the conversation and turn to a possible election bid. On Easter, Al Roker finally got a public answer from President Joe Biden about 2024. Help a brother out. Make some news
0: for me. I I plan on running out, but we're not prepared to
1: announce it yet. That was President Biden ahead of the annual Easter egg roll on the South Lawn of the White House. So, Wendy, why hasn't he officially announced his campaign?
2: This little... Texas two-step, if you will, that candidates are doing is becoming um, really quite amusing. They say they're planning on running. They announce they're going to announce. They form an exploratory committee, which is actually a step you need to do to raise. Then that is, then they put out a video. Then they have an announcement rally. And so um, you know we're just watching um, Biden go through the initial steps um, of he's in the I'm planning to announce stage. Everyone knows he's running, you know, he's, he can, he could start raising money anytime. Um, I think he's just wanting to get a few more presidential things done before he goes into full campaign mode. Um, Maybe even, for example, the debt ceiling fight, get that done before he becomes a candidate. But it is getting, um, yeah, the announcement dance is getting um, really a little silly.
1: Well, well, Benji, how are Democrats feeling about a Biden re-election campaign? Well, there's an interesting
4: divide here, which is that polling has consistently shown that an unusually high number of Democrats, sometimes even basically a majority, um, would prefer there be another candidate. And yet there's no obvious alternative. The candidates running against Biden in the primary are fringe candidates. Um, and in many ways, elected Democrats in Washington are feeling better than ever about a Biden Uh, Re-election right now, especially as Republicans have struggled on the other side. So it's a situation that's very similar to the way Biden won the nomination uh, the last time, which is there was not some obvious huge groundswell of enthusiasm, enthusiasm for Biden personally. But he ends up being a you know a safe harbor for Democrats who are looking for someone who has a you know dependable political brand. And Biden has definitely proven himself in office in that regard with Democrats.
1: Now, someone who is not running for re-election in 2024, Senator Diane Feinstein, the California Democrat, has been absent from the Senate for two months since being hospitalized with shingles. And that absence is a big deal when it comes to her high-profile seat on the Senate Judiciary Committee. This week, she asked Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to temporarily replace her on that committee. Allie, how would that work? Look,
3: we're watching to see how this would work and, frankly, how cooperative Republicans are going to be in terms of making this a seamless switch. Because, really, when you look at the action coming out of Congress, much of the action is really coming legislatively from Republicans and the House. But the Senate's main work right now has been confirming justices and cabinet officials. That's been the central focus. And so the fact that they have one fewer person counting towards their attendance on the Judiciary Committee is a really big deal. I think there's so many layers to this and and we've all been watching this up close in Washington, especially as I'm on the hill every day. <clears throat> it's no secret that there's been a lot of questions about if Feinstein would resign early or if she would retire. Ultimately, we got that answer that it's going to be a retirement, but she has not been back in Washington in weeks. Her office is not giving any updates on a specific date that we should expect her back as she continues recovering from shingles. And we're now starting to see the floodgates open with people in the California delegation like Ro Khanna saying that he thinks that Feinstein should step aside. That would trigger a whole messy situation for the open primary right now for her seat. There are multiple Democrats in California who are running. Gavin Newsom, if she were to resign, would have to appoint someone else to finish out the term. That could really shift the dynamics there. But I think the person I was the most struck by, or two people rather, is... Speaker Nancy Pelosi, of course, a longtime member of the California delegation herself, sort of calling out the hypocrisy here on the gender front that people are foot tapping for Feinstein to resign. I do think that there's something to that. But then I was also struck by Senator Amy Klobuchar, a fellow Democrat on the Judiciary Committee, who said overnight that what she wants to see happen in the next month is sort of a little bit of a waiting game to see if Feinstein comes back but that if she can't, then we'll have a different potentially answer from Klobuchar and others. So a lot of really strange dynamics here as people just sort of play the waiting game, but are getting impatient,
1: clearly. Well, we'll keep watching that story. Meanwhile, the New York prosecutor pursuing criminal charges against former President Donald Trump says one congressional committee is trying to interfere with his work. This week, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg sued GOP House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan for, quote, an unconstitutional attempt to under Mind his investigation. Benji, what has Representative Jordan been doing that Bragg takes issue with? Well, getting involved in a non-federal case in the first place is the big
4: one. So this has been a big question from the beginning about Jordan's oversight of Bragg, which is that, you know, Congress, the Judiciary Committee, generally they're concerned with the federal judiciary and federal investigators and, you know, the FBI. Um, Bragg is entirely, you know, a state-level case run out of the Manhattan DA's office. So Jordan has been trying to get around this by saying they want to look into whether any federal funds have somehow been involved in the investigation and use that as the route in. But Bragg has been Responding that this is just a, you know, interference into an ongoing investigation that is just not under the committee's purview, and that they're just trying to get involved, you know, for the sake of you know, basically undermining their work in protecting Donald Trump personally for political reasons. So there may be other ways around this. The Judiciary Committee is also trying to hear from a former prosecutor who wrote, you know, an entire book basically about their, their time in there that may have or may not have been influential in, you know, brag bringing the case. But in general, it's, it's an uphill climb in terms of jurisdiction.
1: Now, last week, former President Trump pleaded not guilty to 34 felony charges related to hush money payments made in 2016. This week, he said he'd run even if he is convicted. Benji, what do you think that would mean for a presidential run if he is convicted? Uh, we'd
4: be in uh interesting terri- territory, but not unprecedented territory, as a lot of people have pointed out. You know, Eugene Debs ran a campaign from prison. Uh, uh, uh you know, over a hundred years ago. So it it is legally possible and technical, but technically possible. But it it is an added factor here that there are now you know not just one, but, you know, several investigations that look quite possibly to end with indictments that could end up tried before Donald Trump takes office, then you could have the added thing where it's possible judges say, well, maybe we should delay these trials until after the election. But then what happens if Donald Trump wins? You have a sitting president who is, you know, facing, you know, uh, facing trial that could potentially put them in jail in some of these cases, you know, depending on what charges are brought. So we're really in, you know, just wild territory at this point. There's no clear way to say what happens
1: here. Allie, what are you hearing on the Hill about Trump the candidate amidst his legal troubles?
3: I mean, look, the whispers that I've heard from Republicans are different than the public things that I've heard from Republicans. And to everyone who's here, that's probably not shocking because we all did the Trump years together. But I think that what Republicans are publicly doing is starting to counterattack through their committees especially in the house you have Jim Jordan going up with the Judiciary Committee on Monday to Manhattan to try to highlight violent crime there that's his attempt to sort of continue going at Alvin Bragg but look I think more broadly than this There is an apprehension both on Capitol Hill among Republicans, but then in the broader 2024 apparatus that this is not the only indictment that could be looming. Obviously, this one has happened now, but we're also waiting for Fulton County. We're also waiting to see what the two investigations out of DOJ and Washington are going to yield. In theory, indictments should be bad. Trump has, at least in the short term, been able to make this one play to his advantage, but it's not clear that he's gonna be able to continue to do that at each turn if there are more indictments. And at some point, I will say, I've been out covering 2024 and talking to voters in Iowa, there is a little bit of fatigue setting in. Whether or not they think it's fair that Trump is being put through all of these legal hurdles, they do maybe have a sense that it might be time to cut bait and at least go with someone else just so that they can avoid the baggage. Maybe that's the prevailing theory, maybe not, but it's certainly percolating out there.
1: That's Ali Vitale. She's a Capitol Hill correspondent at NBC News. She's also author of Electable, Why America Hasn't Put a Woman in the White House Yet. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Let's turn now to some environmental news. This week, the Environmental Protection Agency announced strict new limits on auto emissions in a bid to speed up the transition to electric vehicles. The transportation sector is the biggest source of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. Wendy, what's included in this EPA proposal?
2: Well, this is a really interesting uh, development. It is, they are going, they've proposed cracking down on pollution, with a measure that's so tough that it will effectively compel the automakers to make two out of every three cars and light trucks sold in 2032, so nine years from now, are electric models. The problem with that, and it sounds great, it will reduce emissions, it will you know help the environment, but the Alliance for Automotive Innovation, for example, is saying that there are things out of the industry's direct control that makes this difficult. For example, the power grids, the charging stations, battery availability. Um, if those things aren't already in place, the cars are, you know, useless. And so I, I think sometimes the administration is putting the cart before the horse. It seems like you need the infrastructure first, and then you can compel them to make them. So they, I think they are trying to, um, uh, to make it work. And Bloomberg economists have predicted that Um, The EV penetration will be 52% by the end of this decade, which is below the 67% that the administration um, envisions.
1: We got this comment from Bob in Cincinnati on electric vehicles. The EPA is using fuel economy regulations, as I understand it, to encourage the vehicle makers to produce more electric and fewer fossil fuel vehicles. It is not clear to me whether this applies to only passenger cars or whether it encompasses light trucks, SUVs and other heavier vehicles also. Can you clarify this? Wendy, what can you tell us?
2: Well, it does cover cars and light trucks. These are not the 18-wheelers that are belching um, awful stuff on the freeways, but it is, you know, your, your pickup trucks, uh, minivans, cars, things like that.
1: Well, let's turn now to Tennessee, where two black Democratic lawmakers were temporarily reinstated to their posts this week. State Representatives Justin Pearson and Justin Jones were expelled by the Republican-controlled House last week after they helped lead a protest on gun control. That was after a Nashville school shooting that left six people dead. They were voted out, while a third representative, who is white, narrowly survived an expulsion vote. What we have shown here in Memphis, Tennessee with my fiancé, my brothers, my family, my parents, and my family here, is that we do not speak alone. We speak together. We fight together. And so the message for all the people in Nashville who decided
0: to expel us, Mm. you can't expel hope. You can't expel justice. You can't expel our voice. And you sure can't expel
4: to fight, yeah. parent to advocate, yeah. justice rolls down like water, yeah. righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Yeah. Let's get back to work. Yeah.
1: That was Tennessee Representative Justin Pearson. The reinstatement is temporary only until Tennessee holds a special election for their seats. Benji, what's been the national reaction to these expulsions?
4: It's been massive um Vice President Kamala Harris uh, flew to Tennessee and met with the uh, expelled lawmakers uh, you know, in a show of support. It is something the White House has been leaning into. National Democrats in general have decried their expulsion and um you know the fact that we 're talking about it now, you know it's there's just been an incredible level of national media attention to the two um, representatives who were expelled. So one issue here in general, and this was something that some Republicans were warning about, uh, you know, before the Tennessee representatives moved forward with this vote, is that by turning these two members into martyrs, who again are already coming back, by the way, you know, essentially symbolic reasons, you give them a gigantic platform to spread their message, and you also put the spotlight on Republicans who now are also suddenly being, you know, having to explain why every single member who's ever been accused of any kind of impropriety ever was not expelled. And so there's been suddenly a lot more attention on the Tennessee legislature and Tennessee state government, which is one of the more chaotic and dysfunctional ones in the country. So it's really been just, you know, quite the explosion of national attention right
1: now. So what happens next for these two lawmakers?
4: Well, they're coming back. So the issue here is after they were expelled, the authority to reinstatement reinstate uh, them was with the county councils so within Nashville within Memphis those county councils already have voted to send them back so you know it was a big dramatic you know thing a lot of talk about an attack on democracy but you know the same democratic system is also sending them right back so the functional you know, change in terms of their influence is not going to be much.
1: Well, I want to touch on another local story that made national headlines this week, this time in Texas. Republican Governor Greg Abbott is pushing to pardon U.S. Army Sergeant Daniel Perry. Perry was convicted of murder for killing Garrett Foster at a protest for racial justice in 2020. Wendy, Perry hasn't been sentenced yet. Foster and Perry were both legally carrying firearms the day of the shooting. What
2: happened Well, this is another example where Republicans in in this year, uh, like the judge in Texas on the abortion pill, are stepping into areas where it's not their lane. Um, Yes, the governor has every right to pardon a convicted murderer, but the fact that Abbott has, uh, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, has weighed into this case at this point is incredibly unusual. I've never heard of any such thing. So Perry... Um, U.S. Army Sergeant Daniel Perry was convicted by a jury of his peers in Travis County of murder. He has not been sentenced yet. He has not filed an appeal. Um, You know, and all of that is yet to happen. And yet the governor has said, I want to pardon him. Uh, Let me, you know, the Board of Pardons and Paroles will make a recommendation to the governor and then he can decide what to do. But it is a, a really sort of odd time. And the case is... I mean, he was Perry was convicted of murder. The case is, has some area where Abbott saw an opening in that the victim um, was Garrett Foster, was carrying an AK-47. Perry was carrying a pistol. They both, um, you know, and so there's an idea that perhaps it was a self-defense, which was a self-defense killing, which was the argument. But... The jury didn't buy that. So I don't know what Abbott's going to do.
1: And we should mention this case has gotten a lot of attention on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News. We're covering some of the week's biggest news. We'll be back with more in just a moment.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear. It means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast.
1: Let's get back into the conversation and turn now to Louisville, Kentucky. On Monday, a bank employee killed five of his co-workers with an AR-15 rifle. He injured nine others before being killed by officers. It's the 15th mass shooting this year, according to an Associated Press and USA Today database. Now, Benji, since that shooting, police released body camera footage, along with audio of a 911 call from the shooter's mother. Walk us through what happened on Monday.
4: Well, it was a shooter who you know attacked this this bank um killing five people and the body cam footage shows you know the officers um confronting the shooter um you know one of them who drives up to the scene and was shot in the head and is now in critical critical condition And then you see, you know, uh, one of the other officers, um, you know, taking out the shooter. And the authorities have credited their actions with, you know, preventing an even worse attack. But it also speaks to how difficult it is preventing these shootings. You know, after the school shooting in Nashville, there was a lot of conversation, as there often is, well, schools need to be better armed. Well, I mean, it's hard to find anywhere better armed than a bank. In fact, in some of these previous conversations, politicians have even said, we need to make schools more like banks. And yet you still have a situation where someone can kill five people, shoot a cop before authorities can intervene, where it seems they did everything right and, you know, quickly stop this attack um, and still just have, you know, this, this terrible tragedy.
1: Now, this is the second mass shooting in as many weeks that killed a family friend of a governor. The best friend of Tennessee Governor Bill Lee's wife was killed at the Covenant School shooting in Nashville, and Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir, says his longtime friend was killed at that bank in Louisville. The two are on opposite sides of the aisle. Lee is a Republican, Bashir is a Democrat. Benji, how are each of them talking about solutions for their respective states? Well, it's actually been
4: interesting in that Governor Bill Lee, a Republican a very conservative state, very pro-gun state, the NRA, you know, frequently hosts its national convention there as it's doing, you know, as as it turns out this week actually, Um, initially did not talk about gun policy, initially just talked about, you know, uh, grief, his personal grief, the state's grief, Um, but then um, perhaps even somewhat surprisingly – uh, he proposed um, potential changes. One would be um, trying to make the background check system more efficient. To uh, this has been an ongoing. Um, Issue over the years, um, getting enough data into the background check system so that it can accurately tell whether someone is, you know, legally able to buy a gun or not. Um, but another issue they mentioned that is, you know, that has come up after other shootings in other states is a version of a red flag law, which is basically some kind of law that provides. Um, People close to, you know, a gun owner with some way to go to the police and say, I'm very worried about my friend or family member or colleague that they are unstable right now or a danger to themselves or others. I think they should not be able to have a gun right now. And at least temporarily, if it succeeds, you can take a gun from that person. Now, th- this has really divided Republicans uh, in a way that other gun You know, proposed gun laws have not where they're pretty much as uniformly opposed at this point. And it's not at all clear that the, you know, Republican state legislature will act on this. There has not been, you know, an immediate groundswell of support for the idea. But similarly, um, Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear, a Democrat, you know, who has generally tried not to wade too far into gun politics – also has mentioned red flag laws, but cautioned right at the gate that it's just unlikely that the Republican legislatures are going to take these laws up. He didn't want to promise anything.
1: Well, Louisville Mayor Craig Greenberg, who's a Democrat, spoke out against a Kentucky law that says the gun used on Monday must be auctioned off. Police aren't allowed to destroy it. Think about that. That murder weapon will
4: be back on the streets one day under Kentucky's current law. My administration has already taken action to remove the firing pin before turning confiscated guns over to the state, because that's all that the current law allows us to do. That's not enough. It's time to change this law and let us destroy illegal guns and destroy the guns that have been used to kill our friends and kill our neighbors.
1: I mean, Benji, as he had to, there's something particularly ghoulish about the idea that this weapon is required to be auctioned off. How are Kentuckians responding to that? Well, this is not a
4: new issue for the mayor of Louisville. In fact, it's an issue he ran on in his mayoral election in 2022. And the reason he ran on it is that a gunman showed up at his campaign office and grazed him and opened fire. Fortunately, people were not killed in that in that shooting. So this is something where, I mean, we're talking about just the level of personal connection that, you know, politicians have to these shootings now. This is someone who was shot at during their campaign and, you know, made the same point then, which is that it is absurd that the gun used to shoot me, a mayoral candidate, has to be auctioned off legally, (laughs) that someone else will be holding this thing. You know, it's so, it just goes to show the, you know, that we are all very used to gun violence at this point whatever policy discussions we've been we are having now are things we're having every week every month it's just hard to find a city or state that does not have examples of these kinds of you know random mass shootings, you know, without even getting into, you know, the the kind of day-to-day gun violence, as they say, you know, between criminals or domestic violence. It's just touched everybody at this point.
1: Randy in Springfield, Virginia says, I just listened to the discussion about the Tennessee representatives. My concern is this, why must there be a special election? And what bothers me is all of the money that's going to be wasted on a special election. Wendy, what can you tell us?
2: Well, he makes a, a very valid point. Um, uh, the but that's the way the Constitution works in Tennessee, or the election laws work in Tennessee. Um, they were expelled from office, which you can argue was it the Tennessee Legislature's right, or was it the right of the voters of their districts? to expel them. I mean, one would think you work for the voters of your district and only they can say whether you are eligible for office. They were expelled. So they're no longer members of the state legislature. As we've discussed, the county councils put them back in office temporarily, but they have to be elected again. We don't have appointed state legislators in this country. So they have to be elected again. And given that the Republican Party's actions have created turn these guys into national stars that are getting long discussions on national broadcast and in the New York Times and everywhere else in Bloomberg, um, they will almost certainly be reelected.
1: We also got this question from Mick, who asks, now that some judges have decided that robes and lab coats are interchangeable, referring here to our earlier discussion on abortion medication, what's to stop a pharmaceutical company from buying themselves a judge to clear the competition? Now, Benji, I know you can't really uh, posit whether a pharmaceutical company would do that, but it but it does call to mind this other conversation about judge shopping. The plaintiffs in the Texas case specifically filed in a district where Judge Kaczmarek, again, a Trump-appointed federal judge, is the only judge in that district. What larger questions are these cases bringing up about judge shopping? Yeah, I mean, this is a
4: big thing, which is that Republicans have figured out now that they have a kind of direct pipeline for many of their favorite cases, that they can at least get it to a conservative circuit court, and through that way, probably the Supreme Court. Now, to name another example, also in Texas, there's Judge Reed O'Connor who overturned the Affordable Care Act. You might remember a couple of years ago, and then had the conservative Fifth Circuit Court, you know, partially uphold that before the Supreme Court intervened and threw out that case. You know, even the conservative justices thought it was an extremely weak case for the most part. This same judge, Reed O'Connor, just recently overturned another part of the Affordable Care Act, which would, you know, which requires insurers to pay for preventive care. This is again not something that Republicans are eager to run on. You know, there's few people who are like, vote for me, I'll make sure your insurance doesn't cover cancer screenings. You know, but it is now for conservatives trying to you know, take a stand on some of these these laws that you can't get rid of through normal politics, you now have a nice pipeline of reliably conservative judges who will often agree with them on the, on the merits here and get it at least to a circuit court and potentially the Supreme Court. So this is definitely a trend you're going to see over and over and indeed are already seeing happen over and over with Republicans and conservatives now confident that they can test a 6-3 conservative Supreme Court.
1: I want to hear from both of you on this broader question about our judiciary right now, because there are these questions about judge shopping and conservative justices versus liberal justices. And now this reporting about Justice Clarence Thomas accepting gifts from a wealthy GOP donor. What's the larger context about this that we need to talk about and about people's trust in the system? Wendy, I'll come to you first.
2: Sure, um, it is sadly another institution that is now um, doubted in Americans minds and that's this has been happening a great deal over the last decade and it is disturbing um, there part of it is the um, Part of it is the appointment system, part of it is a lack of judicial ethics that no one felt was necessary until now for the Supreme Court. Up to Circuit Court of Appeals judges, there is a code of judicial conduct, but the Constitution didn't provide for a code of judicial conduct for the Supreme Court because back in the 18th century, and I'm sure there were plenty of corrupt Supreme Court judges between then and now, but they were considered literally unimpeachable, and the idea that, you know, they would have ethics, you don't need to police them. And now we see that uh, Clarence Thomas may have skirted some of the few rules that are there about disclosing his um, his friendship with uh, Harlan Crowe, a billionaire, and the things that Harlan Crowe bought him. Uh, and in the Dianne Feinstein story we were talking about earlier, our position on the Judiciary Committee, the the notion that we should replace her, or Democrats should replace her until she gets back, um, is being stymied by Republicans who are saying, oh, this is the perfect opportunity to stop the Biden administration from appointing so many liberal judges. So it's all, the law is getting all wrapped up in politics, and that's unfortunate. Benji Potts?
4: Well, we have some data to this. You know, our partners at Gallup, you know, found even before this Clarence Thomas case that Americans' trust in the judicial branch of the federal government was at an all-time low. It was forty-seven percent, whereas you know, it was a twenty-point drop in just a couple of years. And you know, and this is a you know Supreme Court that weathered you know extremely controversial decisions. They decided the two thousand election, you know, in a very direct way. I mean, that's the most polarizing decision you can possibly make. And yet their approval rating was around like 75% then in the same poll. Um, And so this is already, there's this sense that the judges are considered more and more partisan and predictable by voters. But now that you throw this ethics on top of it, it's really becoming a bit of a crisis of legitimacy at this point. And the less legitimacy the court has in the eyes of voters, the more kind of extreme solutions start coming into the conversation. You know, for example, the idea of expanding the court or at least making major reforms to either limit their ability to rule on certain cases or to term limit judges out. um, It just opens up the range of policy conversations when the, the judiciary is no longer seen as impartial.
1: Let's turn now to Twitter. Uh, The BBC's James Clayton interviewed Twitter CEO Elon Musk. Musk answered questions about the rise of hate speech on the platform, the spread of disinformation on Twitter, and the mass layoffs under his tenure.
0: I think it was around just under 8,000, and we're about 1,500 right now. Okay.
1: And has it been hard letting that many people go? Yeah.
0: Not fun at all. It's painful. The the company's either going to go bankrupt uh, or if if we do not cut costs immediately... um, this is not a, a caring, uncaring situation. It's like if the whole ship sinks, then nobody's going to drop.
1: Now, the interview with the BBC came on the heels of Twitter labeling both the BBC and NPR as state-affiliated media. Twitter updated the label to, quote, government-funded media on both NPR and PBS accounts. BBC's now reads publicly-funded media. Now, just for the record, NPR is a non-profit media company. Less than 1% of its $300 million annual budget comes from federal dollars. The vast majority of funding for public radio stations like ours comes directly from listeners. Thank you very much. Now, on Wednesday, NPR became the first major news organization to stop posting on the po- on the social media platform, announcing it would no longer post content on its 52 official Twitter feeds. PBS followed suit. Benji, what do you make of the decision by NPR and PBS to leave this platform? Well, one thing
4: it reflects, I think, is that Twitter tends to get a lot more out of news organizations than news organizations get out of Twitter. And this is one of the kind of like dirty secrets of Twitter compared to other social media even. Um, Twitter does not drive a lot of traffic. Um, You know, it's the famous complaint people use it have is that people don't you know click on the links and you know I believe the media reporter for NPR said only two percent of NPR's web traffic came from Twitter so I would not be surprised to see other outlets do this as they become increasingly personally targeted by Elon Musk for for criticism or for or for odd policy changes um, there's
1: a lot of outlets that I think would be happy to get off Twitter well I just want to make a note that we've decided as a team that 1a will no longer be posting on our Twitter page but there are still lots of ways to connect with us use our Voxpass app. You can connect with us on Instagram at the 1A Show, through our text club, and of course, through email at 1A at WAMU.org. Thanks to Benji Sarlin, Washington Bureau Chief for Semaphore, and Wendy Benjaminson at Bloomberg News. How's see my woman?
0: Oh yeah, there she is. She's so cool. She's in a mini-mini skirt. I don't go over.
1: Before we head to the international edition of the News Roundup, we remember Dame Mary Quant. The British fashion icon passed away on Thursday. She's credited with popularizing the miniskirt during the 1960s. Her intention was to make clothes which would let you run and dance. Quant attended dance classes as a child. The idea for the miniskirt, named after her favorite car, the Mini Cooper, was born at those classes. Here she is in 2012 sharing the story with the BBC.
2: Through a door, I saw this other tap dancing class going on and there was a girl wearing black stockings or black tights and a very short pleated skirt of about 10 inches and tap dancing shoes, patent leather with a sort of bow on top and it was the white socks that of course made it and I knew forever that's it
1: Supermodel Twiggy, also synonymous with 60s British fashion, shared on social media that Quant, quote, revolutionized fashion and was a brilliant female entrepreneur. The 1960s would have never been the same without her. Dame Mary Quant was 93 years old. Got a lot to cover during the global edition of the News Roundup. Stay with us. This message
0: comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now, more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, Their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC.
1: It's the international edition of the News Roundup, where we get to discuss some of the biggest headlines from around the world. Let's get into it. President Biden has made no secret that he loves Irish poets. And this week, his trip to the island of Ireland was a homecoming of sorts. It was a chance to visit two counties where his family has roots and to mark a remarkable peace deal signed 25 years ago. Back home, his administration was scrambling to respond to a leak of state secrets. That hunt appeared to end yesterday south of Boston with the arrest of a suspect. Joining us for the International News Roundup is Saleha Mohsen. She's a senior Washington correspondent at Bloomberg News. Also with us is Nancy Youssef. She's the national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. And with me in studio is James Kitfield. James is a senior fellow at the Center for the Study of the Presidency in Congress. His most recent book is In the Company of Heroes, the inspiring stories of Medal of Honor recipients from America's longest wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Thank you all for joining us. So let's start with a member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard named Jack Tashira. He's 21 years old and under arrest. He was charged today in federal court in Boston. He's charged with the unauthorized retention and transmission of natu- national defense information and the unauthorized removal and retention of classified documents or material. Given the sensitive nature of the secrets that have so far turned up online, plenty of questions remain about what many consider America's worst intelligence breach in a decade. Nancy, tell
5: us more about Jack Tashira. So he's a 21-year-old who joined the Air National Guard in 2019. And his job was essentially um, an IT specialist, a junior one at that. And uh, at some point, he was um, deployed uh, and working um, on on behalf of the National Guard. Um, but what doesn't make sense, I think, for some, is someone at that position, a junior sort of IT person, why he had access to documents like the daily briefs given to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Secretary of Defense, top secret documents. And so it's raised a lot of questions about how much protection there has been around um, uh classified documents. The other thing that we know is he was a gamer, and the reason we know that is because the documents appeared um, on a a gaming site called Discord. He um, appeared in court uh, today, uh, and in that court hearing, we started to see some of the charging documents, and I think one of the most interesting things is, one, it appears that they were able to track him down, not through the printouts um, that we saw online, but rather through the digital fingerprints he left, through some of those um, chat rooms. And the other interesting thing is um, on April 6th, when this story first went public, he actually used his classified access and searched the word leak, apparently trying to see what the government knew about what he – is suspected of doing.
1: Well, one member of that Discord group you mentioned, where classified intelligence documents were posted, spoke to the Washington Post. The speaker, whose identity was not made public by the Post, said Tashira wasn't working for a foreign government.
4: He is not interested in helping any foreign agencies with their attack on the U.S. or other countries. He was a, he was a young, charismatic man who loved nature, God who loved shooting guns and and racing cars. It would appear as if he sort of grew angry with the fact that only one or two people were paying attention to these documents that he was pouring his heart out into. And as a sign of just anger, he just decided to post the full documents. He was a very smart man. There's no way in any world that he would not know that he knew that these were illegal.
1: James, whether it was attention-seeking or something else, how much does it really matter
7: um, well, it probably won't matter for the Justice Department who was going to – I mean, this this guy is in really deep, deep trouble because he has given up the crown jewels of our intelligence. Um, and I'm also curious how such a junior service member would get really the keys to the kingdom on our intelligence. I mean, this stuff had North Korean missile trajectories. uh allies trying to sell Russia secretly, arms uh, and munitions for this fight in Ukraine, as well as Ukrainian readiness, uh, where it's getting the tanks, where it's deploying them, where air, de- air defense munition shortages. I mean, this comes at the worst possible time. Ukraine is poised to launch a spring offensive that could decide this war. If it fails, there'll be huge pressure on Zelens- President Zelensky in Ukraine to reach some sort of negotiated settlement because the Western supporters are, are going to get tired and don't want to support a a frozen conflict. Uh, And if it's successful... Um, then they could actually win this war. So to have all this really finite tactical intelligence released right before that is just the, the worst possible time and the worst. Um, I mean, this is the worst intelligence breach since Chelsea Manning. And if you will recall, she also was a, a very junior service member deployed to Iraq who gave WikiLeaks 750,000 intelligence documents. So this is a disaster, and uh, there's just no really way to, to, to get around that.
1: So, Leah, what have you heard so far about how Tashira got access to these documents, or, or why he had access?
8: You know, it was really interesting, and this is something that Nancy brought up: is that there, this what the answer to this question is actually very embarrassing for the United States. Uh, it raises the question of how the Biden administration is going to explain this, because he was a twenty-one-year-old airman. His job was required only required a high school diploma, a driver's license, and less than eighteen months. job training. So he was a low-level Defense Department employee who had access to very sensitive information. So for the rest of the American public and really the world, it raises the question of how does he have, someone like him, have access to so much sensitive information?
1: Nancy, what could the punishment be in this case?
5: Well, there's a couple. I mean, he faces um, several years in prison, obviously, but also he could potentially, if there's a conviction, face um, a UC- uniform code of military justice charges. Now, under the U.S. system, there's there's no such um, thing like double jeopardy allowed, so he would face different charges. So he he could go through two court processes related to this case. Um, I wanted to sort of answer also, you know. I was thinking about how we think about someone in this position having access. And the only comparison I could think of, assuming that, that he was actually doing the job that, that his job title said he was, was sort of your the IT person at your office who technically could access all of your documents. But the expectation is that that person doesn't because it's on a need-to-know basis in terms of what you access. And so as we think about how someone could have that kind of access, one, one, one explanation might be that. And so while that's okay and... Um, most people's line of work. The question going forward is, should somebody at that level have access to these kinds of documents?
1: Well, as part of this league, documents show President Al-Sisi had ordered 40,000 rockets be sent to Russia to help fight help in its fight against Ukraine. Egypt denies that claim, uh, but that did not stop Ben Rhodes from describing the news as, quote, a geopolitical bombshell. Rhodes was a deputy national security advisor to President Obama from 2009 to 2017, and he made this wider point Tuesday speaking to Andrea Mitchell on MSNBC.
4: I think it also speaks generally, Andrea, to this question in the Middle East, where you see Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Egypt, traditional U.S. partners, kind of sitting this one out or playing both sides. Uh, These are autocratic systems uh, who might feel like their future is more secure, not with the U.S. It is describing a battle between democracy and autocracy, but, you know, in the autocratic
1: camp. And despite that denial by Egypt, that does raise the question, James, why would Al-Sisi help arm Russia?
7: well you know egypt's relationship with Russia goes way back to the Cold War where uh, the Soviet Union supplied most of egypt's weapons uh ever since uh for decades we have we have since the rapprochement between Egypt and Israel we have made them the number two recipient of u s foreign aid over a billion dollars a year. So they kind of jumped into our camp, and that's where we assumed they were. But, but you know, let's be clear. After the Arab Spring, there was a military coup that he led. Uh, so he is an autocrat. He's a military coup leader and autocrat, and he may find himself more comfortable. There is a perception in the Middle East that the United States is pulling back, uh, f- focusing on the peer competition with China and on Russia and Ukraine. Uh, so there, you know, you saw that with Saudi reaching out and reaching an agreement to reestablish relationships with Iran. That's something almost no one thought they would see. So there is this 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 flux in the Middle East where they think that uh, there's a vacuum created by the U.S. pulling back. But if this if this is actually comes out and is proven, uh, he's in really he's in a really tough spot because he's very that country is very dependent on our largess, and it will be almost impossible for an administration to keep giving a billion dollars to a regime that's willing to give munitions to Russia during this fight.
1: We got this question from Jay in Maryland who asks, can anyone on the panel comment on whether there is a difference between access and need to know? Nancy, I'll come to you.
5: There is. So, um... You, you go through an extensive background check to sort of um, to get clearance for secret and top secret. Uh, for example, um, in this case, um, Mr. Teixeira joined the military in 2019. He was given access to these documents in 2021. But just because you have access doesn't mean that you can kind of search at, to, at your pleasure to through all the documents. The expectation is that if you have access, that you're only accessing things that are relative to your job. Moreover, if you print out documents, you're expected to dispose of them um, in a proper way. They have these things called burn bags um, where you put them in and they're destroyed. So there are two, two things that are um, – expected on someone who has that access, that they handle the information responsibly and that they only access uh, information that is relevant to the work that they do. That doesn't mean that they're cut off then to only documents that are relevant because, of course, that is a fluid decision uh, who can get who needs what at what time.
1: Catherine asks, Do your panelists believe that Obama's commuting of Chelsea Manning's sentence gave the wrong message about such crime? This generation seems to be the most attention seeking in history. And if there are minimal consequences to data leaks, why would anything change going forward? I'd love to hear from each of you on that question. James, I'll come to you first.
7: You know, it's a tough question. You know, what she did was very serious. Um, she did it at a very young age and had a tough time in jail while she was transitioning. Um, you know, it, I don't, I mean, I think it was, I think it was justified to actually commute her sentence, um, but it doesn't, that doesn't play down the damage that she did, which was severe and releasing all that intelligence.
1: So Leah, your thoughts?
8: I'd have to say that really the the responsibility to protect national uh, and state secrets come down to the U.S. government. Uh, maybe 21-year-old new hires who are have just less than two years with, of on-the-job training aren't supposed to be eligible to have access to this. Maybe the U.S. government needs to do more to, to uh, limit the access and the leakability of such sensitive information. So maybe it doesn't have to do about previous um you know commutations and and examples of leaking and how leakers behave but really how the US
5: government is behaving
1: and Nancy your thoughts
5: well I think the listener raises a great question. I actually I've had a different one which and made a different connective thread is you, you referenced the Washington Post story, which was extraordinary this week, and in it um, the friend referenced to the fact that 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 the suspect felt that the information wasn't getting out, that there was a lack of transparency. And we heard that in the Manning case too. The connector thread that I see is people feeling that the um, lack of details, the the public's right to know wasn't being honored and they've chosen to act this way. And so um, as I'm thinking about these issues going forward, I'm curious how much that is a driving force and what kinds of changes that leads to within government, not only around how we handle classified documents, but also how we communicate um, how government, how government is acting and what it's and its decision making.
1: Well, let's move on to several stories out of China, starting with the latest attempts to intimidate Taiwan. On Monday, China's military wrapped up three days of live-fire military drills around Taiwan. Also, at least 71 Chinese aircraft crossed the unofficial boundary between Taiwan and the mainland. Nancy, these drills are China trying to send a message. What is that message and why now? Well,
5: I'll start with the latter one, which is... um The Taiwanese president had just, um, the U.S. doesn't call it visit, had transited, that's the word they use, um, through the United States, and during that time met with Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy. The Chinese had threatened that they would um, act um, in response to that, and they conducted this exercise. This exercise was not on the scope or scale that we saw last year after Nancy Pelosi visited Taipei, but what we saw was a real exercise of the... Chinese Navy and Air Force, particularly the use of its aircraft carrier. There were 80... fighter missions, 40 helicopter flights and we saw um, their attempt to do two things but one, militarily practice um, encirclement, practice the use of its air force and navy and also politically a form of coercion by um, by maneuvering around um, Taiwan they were signaling that they are readying um, to potentially um, fight for um, what they see as, as their territory and so the exercises themselves were a form of message regime, but also had a practical um, application, too.
1: Well, French President Emmanuel Macron spoke out about the Taiwan tension, warning against Europe being drawn into any clash between the U.S. and China over Taiwan. Macron said that getting involved in the crisis would be, quote, a trap for Europe. He made the comments to Politico aboard France's Air Force One on the way home from a trip to China last week. Macron continues to stand by his comments about Europe and its autonomy. But reactions to his China visit are mostly negative. He's been accused of allying himself with China by leaders in Europe and beyond, including former President Donald Trump, who had less than kind things to say about the visit. Saleha, what's the bigger story here?
8: You know, what President Macron is trying to do is talk about how European nations, like France, should come together and behave like the third major power in the global order the first two of course are the US and China because of the sheer size of their economies if the europe if the european nations can come together then they are a third superpower in this order and what macron is saying is that he wants Europe to stand up for its own geopolitical objectives. And with that in mind, he talked about his goal of long term, quote, strategic economy, end quote, for Europe, where they are not relying on other countries like the US or China or anyone else for military or economic
1: goals. Now, this is all playing out against the background, uh, the backdrop of ongoing anti-government protests in France. James, what does this mean for Macron's presidency
7: uh, he looks very isolated right now he I mean i i understand this dream of strategic autonomy that france has had going back to de gaulle uh Sounds good, and in, in, especially after the Trump presidency when they saw the America sort of trying to get rid of the NATO uh, alliance, et cetera. So the, it made it more attractive. But it's a non-starter. They Certainly the EU is a economic superpower. But it has shown time and time again, Ukraine being a perfect example, that in terms of security, it needs – it is dependent on the United States. So its timing was terrible with the Ukraine war at a critical juncture. The Eastern European – members of the EU and of NATO slapped him down and said, we need the EU, the United States more than ever right now. We're the ones who are giving the bulk of support to Ukraine, not the Europeans. And so there's a he's – a, he's a he wants to lead the strategic autonomy and no one's following him, including his own people who are upset more about their retirement program than they are about Ukraine. But the, he, he just showed – an absolute 10 year and terrible timing of this trip um, to sort of press for strategic autonomy, especially on the issue of Taiwan, which is coming to a head. Uh, we've had U.S. military leaders say within five years they expect there could be a war over Taiwan, and President Biden has said we will come to Taiwan's defense, sort of um, getting rid of the strategic uh, uh, ambiguity that used to have our, you know, b- Bulwark behind our, our one China policy, so Taiwan's a big deal. It's not the time for Macron to go over to China and basically say, "Hey, you know, Europe's not with the United States on this." So,
1: so why why make that move now?
7: I, I think that he sees. I think it's primarily he sees a chance here for because we're kind of saying we should strategically decouple somewhat from our economies from China uh, in certain things like chips and, and and things that sort of make their security uh, services stronger and Europe, which is very dependent on trade with with uh, China, so I think he wants to put some distance between thus uh, on the econ- economic sphere. But again, at a time when Europe's got, uh, confronting the biggest war since World War II in its center, and it's very reliant on U.S. security, it's just terrible timing.
1: Well, this week, Brazil's President Luiz Inacio Lula da Silva is visiting China. It's Brazil's biggest trade partner. Lula is expected to use the visit to push for peace between Ukraine and Russia. Nancy, what do you expect to come from this trip?
5: Well, we've already had one development, which is he called on developing countries to work towards replacing the U.S. dollar with their own currencies in international trade, which is um, uh, so- something that um, China has um, encouraged as well. And so that was an interesting development. I should preface this by saying, you know, he he his predecessor had a very tense relationship with China. Bolsonaro criticized China for its um handling of COVID and blamed China for the spread of COVID for Huawei and its um, investment in 5G. And so this, I think, was a reset trip um, with um, the, his biggest trading partner. And and the fact that he was talking about moving off of the U.S. dollar really was signaling, I think, the, the push towards um, – by Brazil to have relations both with China and the US. He visited the United States in February. This is his first um, state visit. And and I think it's Brazil trying to reset its relationship with China from one that was adversarial to one that they think can um, exist um, parallel with its relationship with the United States. Well,
1: before we move on from China, one more story. Millions of people in China watched as the Memphis Zoo said goodbye to Yaya, a 22-year-old female panda who's returning home to China after two decades in the U.S. Yaya was brought to the zoo in 2003 on loan from China. In the last few months, she's gone viral on Chinese social media, with many concerned for her well-being due to her chronic skin and fur condition. In response, the Memphis Zoo denied any mistreatment and told the Associated Press that she's one of the, quote, most spoiled animals on the planet. On Tuesday, President Biden spoke with the family of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gerskovich, who was arrested in Russia last month. Gerskovich was arrested on accusations of espionage. It's the first time a U.S. correspondent has been detained on spying accusations since the Cold War. The Wall Street Journal denies the allegations and is seeking his immediate release. Evan is 31. His family spoke to the Journal this week, and we want to bring you part of that interview. You'll hear from his dad, then his older sister, and finally from his mom. Did you ever talk to him about what could happen as a journalist in Russia?
3: Uh, uh, no, uh, but I trusted him. I trusted his judgment. Of course, it makes things more difficult for me now because I, I feel, feel that I've failed in some way as a father.
8: How do you imagine he is right now? You've met my parents. They're incredibly strong, <laughs> strong people. Um, and I think he has their strength. Hopefully he's writing. Um... I know he's reading. <laughs> yeah, I, and uh, um, I was hoping he could he could make friends. I, I, I know that's probably a silly thing to say,
2: but um, I, I can see him making friends in there. It's what one of the American qualities that we absorbed. Be optimistic, believe in happy, happy ending. That's uh, where we stand right now. But I am not stupid. I understand what's involved, but that's what I choose to believe. That's
1: Evan Gerskovich's parents and sisters speaking to The Wall Street Journal. Here's U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken.
7: In my own mind, there's no doubt that he's being wrongfully detained.
1: Nancy, Evan is your colleague at The Wall Street Journal. What does the wrongfully detained designation mean for his release?
5: The wrongfully detained essentially launches a, a much broader government effort to try to secure Evans' release. It, You know, usually if an American is detained, they have consular services th- from the United States, they have some rights. But once you're wrongfully detained... It opens the case to move from sort of the State Department to the Special Envoy for Hostage cases. um, And it allows government to use many, many more resources than they ordinarily would. And so that was a really important designation and hopefully creates uh, an opportunity to find a pathway for his release. That all said... Uh, Evan still hasn't had consular, a consular visit, which is a uh, right entitled to someone detained. And so um, while the wrongfully detained status is an important development, there, the fact that he hasn't had consular services really shows how many things still need to happen to, to, to try to um, get a sense of his welfare and ultimately to secure his release.
1: Well, Nancy, what kind of criteria has to be met to be considered wrongfully detained?
5: well it's essentially um, an extensive process that they go through where they're looking at the ca- his case to determine whether um the the classification of that's being used to hold him is um, justified essentially um, whether uh, the holding of that American is outside the bounds of what is uh, what normally happens the charge. So it's a long, long criteria. that they It's a very legally um, driven criteria that the State Department uses. And often it can take weeks or months. And in this case, they did it in a matter of days. And so um, it's essentially a legal assessment that they're doing to determine um, whether the government needs to now invest more resources for that case.
1: So, Leha what are Russian officials saying about Evans' arrest?
8: Yeah, this has been really interesting. Uh, My own colleagues at Bloomberg News have reported that it was Russian President Vladimir Putin personally who approved the uh, arrest of uh, Evan on espionage charges. Uh, It's the first that he would have approved uh, since the uh, Cold War. You know, this move reflects the widening influence of Kremlin hardliners who are pushing for deeper and deeper confrontation with Washington. Um, But officially, Kremlin spokesperson uh, Dmitry Peskov said that it wasn't Putin's decision, but the total prerogative of special services. Um, But really, those agencies all report directly to President Putin
1: well and James, just briefly explain the process of getting someone who's wrongfully detained back back home again what goes into
7: that uh, negotiations and uh, you know I have to believe like many others that this is basically hostage taking and they they haven't done this in the past with with journalists from uh, major uh, outlets but we're in new territory with Russia now we're basically at war or proxy war with them. Uh, And I think they're looking for whatever leverage they can get. We saw this with uh, Griner's case as well. And it's, you know, at the end of the day, I'm afraid it's going to require that Russia get something out of it, i.e., like we did with in the Greiner case. Brittany Greiner,
1: the WNBA player.
7: Correct, Mm -hmm. where we um, released uh, Victor Bout, who was one of the world's great arms uh, traffickers. So I'm afraid that's where we're headed. But it's got to be a negotiation. uh, And I got to believe that was the motive for them doing this.
1: On Wednesday, President Biden delivered a speech in Belfast to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement.
0: The dividends of peace are all around us, and this very campus is situated in an intersection where conflict and bloodshed once held a terrible sway.
1: The agreement brought to an end 30 years of what was known as the Troubles in Northern Ireland.
5: Nancy, remind us, what did the Good Friday Agreement do? Well, essentially, it was an agreement between um, mostly Protestant unionists who favored remaining in the UK and mostly Catholic um, Irish nationalists who wanted to see Irish reunification. And so the deal um, stipulated that when a majority of people in the province want reunification, a referendum would be called. Right now, polls show that while support for unification is growing, it still falls short of the majority. And of course, most importantly, it ended... 30 years of violence. And so this has been the agreement that has created a mostly peaceful um, Ireland and is celebrated as such. And uh, there have been um, th- threats of um, instability and violence Violence in there. We, we've seen this most recently with the attempted murder of Detective Chief Inspector John Caldwell, who local poli- police say was the most senior officer targeted by a suspected Irish dissident. Um, since the peace deal. So there are threats um, to it, but it has held um, for 25 years and and it is seen as um, an example of what an enduring um, peace document can look like, one that um, allows democracy to, to sustain.
1: And at the time President Bill Clinton was involved in that agreement, what was at stake for the U.S., Nancy?
5: Well, a couple of things. Uh, there, of course, there's a special relationship between the United Kingdom and the U.S. The U.S. has a long um, and rich um, history with Irish um, American immigrants. This was the post Cold War period, where um, I think one message the United States wanted to send then and now is the enduring um, ability of democracies to hold. And so, the U.S. is front and center. Um, the President Clinton um, actually. Uh, wrote an editorial um, this week in the Washington Post, and he says that it was driven by people that ev- and that everybody wanted to reach an agreement. And so he he basically said that this was driven by the 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 willingness of individuals to to invest in the relationship, the the precision to detail, and an agreement across both sides that now was the time for an enduring peace. Uh, Saleha, what did we hear from
1: President Biden during this trip?
8: So, you know, Biden, President Biden chose a symbolic location for the speech. And I think that's important uh, to to know is a university campus that's new in downtown Belfast. He was speaking to students, you know, so that really that really points out and highlights the fact that he wanted this speech to be about the future of the region, not just the history in the past on the campus there was a, br- a brand new beautiful glass building and in his speech biden remarked about how in a city that was once filled with barbed wire a glass building could never have have existed and he used that speech you know in front of students on a new re- uh, university campus to show how, just how far the country had come his the whole purpose of his speech was to make a direct call for all the political parties and and stakeholders in North Ire- Northern Ireland to return to the power-sharing government. But his biggest message was keep the peace.
1: Well, I want to turn to the Mediterranean next, but first let's get to this comment on a story we talked about a little earlier, and that's the leak of classified documents. We heard from Tom in San Diego through our app, 1A Fox Pop. Tom says, I want to know why the media seems so concerned at the release of this classified information. Usually I don't expect journalists to be unhappy about leaks. And and James, I think most of you
7: are just really recounting what the facts of the story are, but do you care to comment? Well, it it puts journalists in kind of an interesting position because you know we like transparency, we like and, and there has been a rash of stories built on these releases, so we've learned a lot and we've done really good stories on that. At the same time, I think most journalists who've covered national security also realize there are some things that probably shouldn't be in the public domain, i.e. Uh, the readiness of certain Ukrainian units and how much munitions they have and how dire their munition situation is right before a spring offensive that's going to go that could decide the ukraine war so i I haven't seen many journalists other uh, than maybe wikileaks who thinks that everything should be out there willy-nilly but once it is out there the journalists are are basically bound and responsible for trying to understand what you're what we're learning that was hidden before
1: well nancy as someone who covers national security i'd love your thoughts
5: well, I mean, I, I always I let the news dictate. I, I My job is to sort of inform the reader and let them know. I think the scope and scale of it um, is so newsworthy. I think any time you see someone who has gone through that months-long security clearance process and for whatever reason chooses to put that information out, um, it is noteworthy. I also think um, it's an, an opportunity for us to get um, some sense of how the U.S. is Thinking about it, and so the the reporting challenge is how do you do it in a responsible way, given that this is information that um, was deemed classified. And I should note, when something is deemed top secret, one of the criteria is that the release of that information could put lives at stake. And so... Our responsibility is to give readers as much information as possible because what's happened is an important breach. And one could argue that the public has a right to know that this is how sensitive information is being handled or mishandled. And at the same time, do it in a way that is responsible. And so those are the driving factors that um, have sort of shaped my approach to reporting the story.
1: Well, before we move on, we got this comment from C.T. Oaks, who says, To understand how a 21-year-old enlisted man had access, you would have had to serve in the military. Officers often sign off on material, but that material and research is most often compiled by low-ranking enlisted men and women. For several months, when I was enlisted in Vietnam... Every piece of information or data requested by the Paris Peace Talks was written up and transmitted by me. It's just how the military works. I had a top-secret clearance, but I was just a lowly 19-year-old enlisted man. We'll continue to follow that story as it develops. Let's turn now to the Mediterranean. 441 migrants have died in the Mediterranean Sea in the first three months of this year. Those numbers are from the International Organization for Migration. James, why are we seeing more casualties now?
7: Because more people are more people are trying to come across that dangerous Mediterranean route into into Europe. I mean, we've seen this rolling crisis in Europe going back years, and unfortunately, there's just been you know I have always said immigration is the is the problem from hell. We're confronted it on our own southern border. Europe's confronting it and has been confronting it for years, uh, and it's it's really split the European Union there. You know, they they talk a, a really good game about uh, when migrants arrive in Italy uh, or Greece uh, that they, they the ones they're allowed to stay should be shared around the EU so no one country is overwhelmed. But they but no one really steps up and takes those migrants. So Italy is is declared an emergency because it's it's basically the first point of uh, you know of arrival for these migrants. 31,000 migrants have been rescued by the Italian Navy and Coast Guard just this year, 31,000. And they're not getting a lot of help from their their fellow European countries. So it is a crisis. Uh, and if left unchecked, uh, you know, we've seen it was, it was the driving uh, cause of Brexit, uh, the immigration issue. It caused right-wing parties to sprout up in Germany that we haven't seen since World War II. It is a really difficult problem, but they need to get a handle on it.
1: Well, the port city, Catania, is one place where migrants are landing. Here's the president of the Catania Red Cross Committee speaking with the outlet France 24 English. We give
0: the survivors shoes and blankets, then we offer hot meals. We propose recreational activities, especially for children, to try to distract and relax them. Let's hope that they don't have to wait too long at sea.
1: As James mentioned, Italy declared a six-month state of emergency to cope with the surge in migrants. An initial 5 million euros will be poured into that effort. Nancy, how do Italian officials say this will expedite how they process and assist migrants?
5: Well, I think their hope is that by declaring the state of emergency that it opens the resources such that they can invest in it, understanding that, as Jane's rightly noted, that the um, international community has done little to sort of solve this problem long term. And I mean, to give you a sense of perspective, in twenty. 20- 2015, uh, the number of deaths at this point of the year was 446. We're at 441 now. In 2017, it was 742. And so we have seen, as, as James rightly noted, that there hasn't been a, an, a successful effort to, to address this problem over years and over multiple crises that have led to this level of migration. And so I think one thing I worry about is that whether these tolls become normalized and have become normalized over time. But the Italians are saying that they need these resources to sort of come up with better ways to support those going in to better um, secure borders and to um, address what happens when um, migrants are coming on overcrowded and unfit um, ships for, for these journeys.
1: Before we wrap up, we want to mention a deadly event that happened in Myanmar this week. On Tuesday, the military carried out an airstrike on a gathering of opponents of army rule. Initial reports suggested around 50 people were killed, many of them children. Later reports raised the death toll to 100. Myanmar's ruling military has been violently suppressing resistance since it took over in early 2021. Thousands of civilians have been killed. We'll keep following that story and giving you updates. Asaleha, we're turning to your expertise for this last story. This week, financial leaders from across the world met in Washington. Central bank chiefs and finance ministers gathered for the annual spring meetings of the International Monetary Fund and World Bank. What were the big headlines coming out of these meetings, Saleha?
6: Absolutely. We have all the global economic and finance overlords uh, gathering in Washington uh, under the cherry blossoms. One emerging theme That is noticeable is the uh, dissonance between the United States and the International Monetary Fund on the outlook for economic growth. Um, On the one hand, there's a pretty funny message from U.S. Secretary Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. She said earlier this week that the global economic outlook today is better than it was six months ago. Um, And she's pinning all of our hopes on the U.S. as a major driver of the world economy, saying, quote, the U.S. is performing exceptionally well. But on the other hand, there's IMF managing director, uh, Kristalina Georgieva, she's singing a very different tune. She gave a warning that the five year outlook for growth is the weakest it's been in several decades. She also brought to attention that the breakup in supply chains and economic alliances resulting from the war in Ukraine and other geopolitical tensions will continue to have negative consequences for economic growth. So we're at a moment where world leaders are disagreeing on the trajectory of economic growth, which is going to affect the pockets of millions of people around the world. Right,
1: and, and so if you people listening who are thinking about that grocery bill, maybe in the process of trying to purchase a home or a car, what does it mean for them?
6: It means that the, the people who are in charge of managing the economy can't agree, which means if they don't agree what the problems are, maybe those solutions will hit our pocketbooks in the form of higher gas prices, higher prices for egg, milk, all sorts of grocery store inflation. It also affects the job market. If they're not keeping an eye out on what the next uh, black swan event or hot button issue is going to be, people could be losing jobs. I'd
1: love to hear from each of you a story you'll be following in the coming weeks. James?
7: It's all about this offensive in Ukraine. I think that this could be actually a turning point one way or the other in how this war goes. And uh, as I said earlier, it's not particularly helpful to the Ukrainians that so much of their uh, tactical situation is now been revealed to the world, including the Russians.
1: Nancy, what about for you?
5: I think over the coming days, we're going to learn more and more about these leaks, how they happen, the driving forces behind them, and how they change how the U.S. military and the intelligence community broadly talks about information.
1: Taleha, I'll give you the last word here.
5: Absolutely. I think we're going to
6: be looking internally here in in the United States at the Supreme Court, one on the abortion pill front, but also on the front of what happens when a a member of the Supreme Court is violating ethical rules uh, and how to maintain that rule of law that the whole world uh, relies on for the U.S. as the bastion of democracy for the world.
1: My thanks to Saleha Mohsen, Senior Washington Correspondent at Bloomberg News, Nancy Youssef, National Security Correspondent at The Wall Street Journal, and James Kitfield, Senior Fellow at the Center for the Study of the Presidency and Congress. Thank you all for joining us. And now, a remembrance. Longtime ABBA guitarist Lassa Wielander passed away on Friday. Although never an official member of ABBA, Wielander worked with the group from the late 70s until they broke up in the early 80s. Before joining them, he worked as a session musician, which he never quit. Abba paid their respects to Wielander via social media, posting on Instagram, quote, The importance of his creative input in the studio, as well as his rock-solid guitar work on stage, was immense. Lhasa Wielander was 70. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior supervising producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand, with help from Matthew Simonson. And Barb Angiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with its original podcast, On Investing. Each week, you'll get thoughtful, in-depth analysis of both the stock and the bond markets. Listen today and subscribe at schwab.com slash oninvesting or wherever you get your podcasts. Support
3: for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash NPR. It's a high-stakes election year,
8: so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you.